In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to round out our Advent series by looking at the Gospel proclamation for the Christmas Eve Mass, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Please enjoy and have a Merry Christmas. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we explore the sources of the Catholic faith, including the scriptures, the documents of the church, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, and the lives and witness of the saints. St. John Paul II often said, Duke in Altum, set out into deep waters. And our goal here at the podcast is to help you do just that. We don't want to merely provide you with information. Instead, we seek to help you achieve a true transformation and to respond to the Lord's call in your life to live out the universal call to holiness. Welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the director of faith formation here at the St. Philip Institute. This is going to be our final episode in our Advent series. And what I want to do in this episode it's a little bit different than what I've done in the other three, uh, and that is I just want to patiently, slowly read through the gospel, just the gospel that is proclaimed at the Christmas Mass that happens in the evening of December 24th. And it could be at like 6 p.m. or midnight, depending on where you're at. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, uh, if you look at Mass readings for December 25th, for Christmas, for the Nativity of the Lord, there are five options. There is a Vigil Mass, then there's the Midnight Mass, then there's Mass in the morning on Christmas Day, during the day on Christmas Day, and in the evening on Christmas Day. So there's five options. I'm going to go with the Midnight Mass liturgy um, for for two reasons. One is because it gets us into the infancy um, narrative, the, the announcement of the birth from Luke's gospel, and that's really what I want to talk about. But the second, uh, which is really not important, but it has mattered a lot to me just as a, as a child and as I've grown up, uh, when I was nine, ten years old, I had an Irish priest, um, Father James O'Reardon, um, who was uh, my pastor in Mississippi, and I happened to be paying attention to a homily, which is pretty good. Uh, for me to be paying attention to a homily, and he said that if you have a choice of going to a midnight mass for Christmas or for Easter, you should go to the midnight mass. And he said it like it was an absolute hard and fast rule. And I'm a weird person that wants to follow rules. I guess I've just had that proclivity most of my life. I want to go the speed limit. You know, I want to follow rules if I can. Um, like I really try to, right? So he said, you should go to the midnight mass. And the next year when it was Christmas and we were coming up and my parents were talking about, maybe we'll go to church during the day or whatever. I, I gave them the father of Reardon. Hey, father of Reardon said, we should go to the midnight mass. If we have a choice, he said, it's better. And my dad said, well, all right, I guess we're going to midnight. So I've been going to that midnight mass since I was a kid. Um, and so I've heard this reading, time and time and time again. Um, so we're just going to jump right into uh, the gospel, and uh, this is the gospel of Luke. Chapter 2 begins right at the beginning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be enrolled, each to his own town. 
And Joseph, too, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David that is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to have her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were struck with great fear. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That ends in verse 14. I'm going to pick up just the, the tail end of this from the actual gospel itself. Just six more verses. When the angels went away from them into, the, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. Okay, so... So much there in this reading, so many different dimensions that I want to just kind of walk back through it and kind of point to some of these things um, about about this reading that just really, I think, if, if you're prepared, can help you enter more deeply um, into that liturgy. So the, the first thing is this notion of the historical dimension of Luke's gospel. And you can see this at the beginning of the gospel. Luke is, is you know, he has a an appellation to a Theophilus, and he's, you know, telling him that he, he talked to, to, to witnesses, and, and he, he get, gathered all the accounts, and he wanted to put everything in an orderly fashion so that you can, you can know the, the gospel. Um, and in the announcement of Jesus' birth here in chapter 2, we get some really good indications of that. When did this happen? Well, it was when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and there was a census decree from Caesar Augustus. This is precisely not how you would begin a myth. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very common. I don't know if it's as common today as it, as it was, but it, there certainly was a, a period where it was very common, even in scholarship, to look at the gospel and say, oh, this is just a myth or a legend. Um, it is a sort of communal fairy tale, you know, about a, a guy that, that probably never existed. Um, and, and actually, Luke's gospel is set up um, actually in a very historical way where he is telling us people and places and times 
Um, and all of those things need to be recognized. Um, so they're, they're not, this is not, in other words, in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's not a long time ago. It's when Caesar Augustus ordered a census, and it was, uh, you know, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Um, and everyone had to go and obey the census. So there's that first piece about the, the sort of the historicity, um, the historicity, excuse me, of Luke's gospel. Um, but then there's also this really interesting power dynamic, and this is something that, that Bishop Barron brings out. Bishop Barron preaches beautifully on uh, the nativity story of Luke's gospel. Um, so this is the Word on Fire Bible, the Gospels edition. Um, if you have a copy of this, there's a fantastic essay um, on this reading that Bishop Barron includes there. Um, and it's like seven or six, I don't know, four or five pages. I could just count. It's five pages, um, but it's it's really good. One of the things that he draws out very well in his preaching and in that essay is this power dimension. So if you're a first century person and you're reading this, and you say, okay, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, got it. We know who those are. That must be who this story's about. Uh, but then you encounter a Joseph. You don't know who this guy is. Oh, House of David. Well, at that time, the House of David was sort of had fallen into embarrassment. You know, the line of David seemed like it had died. Um, there was no, in other words, there was no Davidic heir. But, oh, okay, yeah, you're from the House of David. That would have mattered a long time ago, but now it doesn't. And Mary, these obscure characters, it's it's clearly not going to be about them, right? It's going to be about Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. And I love the way that Baron, the Bishop Baron deals with it. It's sort of like a reversal of fortunes, and uh, it, everything switches on you. You realize, as the story of the gospel goes on, that truly this story is about actually the most powerful person, not Caesar, not Quirinius, but this little tiny baby, this Jesus who was born in a manger, right? Uh, and in obscurity and anonymity. Really, I encourage you to, to look up Bishop Barron's homily on Luke 2, 1 through 14, or if you've got the Word on Fire Bible, look at this essay it's, it's really beautiful the way he sort of contrasts the power, the pleasure, the comfort, the security of Caesar, who is, you know, in, in this indomitable force who has military at his disposal. He's living in, in sumptuous riches. Uh, and, you know, he was, by all accounts, he was, he was the head of he was He was the Kyrios. He was the Lord. That was the title that was used to refer to him. But Luke is showing us the true Lord, the true Kyrios, who is going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And he's laid in a manger because there was no room for him at the inn. Then there's this also an interesting dimension where the, the census is taking place. So they've got to go to the town of Bethlehem. They were in, uh, the, the, in, for, in Galilee, uh, in Nazareth at Galilee, and they've got to go up to Bethlehem, the city of David. So Caesar's power, in a certain way, by, by calling the census, has pushed Joseph and Mary from Nazareth into Bethlehem. And that's one way of looking at it, but it's the wrong way, because they needed to be in Bethlehem, because this is where the prophets said the Savior would be born. So the Lord is using Caesar's measly power to arrange things so that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, the city where he's supposed to be born. 
also interesting to to mention. Bethlehem means city of bread, right? And and so Bethlehem is the city of bread. The Lord is going to give us his body in place of bread. He's going to feed us with the bread that is his body, right? There's this Eucharistic dimension even to the name of Bethlehem. And he's driven there, you know, sort of by appearances by Caesar, but it's really a divine providence that wants him to be there. And Caesar is a sort of useful tool to kind of make this happen. Then the next bit, well, you know, they're there and the time is, has come for Mary to have her child. So she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, and you'll see this in some, um, you know, medieval or, um, I don't know, medieval, I, I don't know time frames and art. My art history knowledge isn't great. Uh, but in some beautiful, great works of art that are, I think, very old, maybe it's Renaissance artwork, you see Christ wrapped in the swaddling clothes, and it looks like the bandages that you would be wrapped up in to be buried. And so uh, my favorite author, Fulton Sheen, um, describes that even at the nativity, maybe even maybe you could even say, especially at the nativity of Jesus, there are images of his death all around, swirling around. He's literally wrapped up like you would be wrapped up to be buried. It was necessary to keep him warm, but it's still he's wrapped up, he's confined, he's a prisoner in certain in a certain way, he's bound, um, and he is. Uh, not just that, but the, the, the shepherds bring gifts of frank, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, um, and two of those are spices that are used for burial, right? And so Mary is receiving burial spices, and Jesus is wrapped up sort of tightly like you would wrap a body that's going to be buried. Um, there's the sort of uh, humiliation of the Son of God being born in a stable among animals, He's the most powerful person in the world. Yeah, he's the Lord that created everything. Here he is amidst his creation, unrecognized. Nobody knows, right? Um, uh, Bishop Barron, again, that, uh, this, this essay is fantastic, and his preaching on it is great. He contrasts Caesar's ultimate freedom. He can do whatever he wants, go wherever he wants with the baby, Jesus' constraint. He's wrapped up, in, and, he, and he has no power. He can't, he can't even lift his head. Right, um, so this this fragility that is going to be the power uh, that, that I mean, it is right. It's Christ who is the most powerful, but He comes to us in this absolute weakness of of a human child, of a baby, um, and He He is in that state, and He has to be cared for. Um, then the presence of the shepherds. There were shepherds in that region, right? And they, the the, the Lord appears to them. Do not be afraid. I behold to you. Before behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, um, and this will be the sign. You will find a child, you know, in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And they, what do they do? They don't go. What crazy person? They go. They they immediately go. And then the reason I read verses fifteen through twenty, which is not actually read at the mass on on Christmas Eve, but they go. They encounter Mary, and then it says. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it been to, as it had been told to them. They become evangelists. Um, in in Mark's or sorry Matthew's gospel, there's a discussion about you know uh, the, the wise men um, who are uh, told go find out about this baby and come back and tell Herod everything they can. And Fulton Sheen, I love the way he narrates it. Says 
it, the Gospel of Matthew says that they left, when they left after having encountered the Lord, they went back a different way. And Sheen says that's how we all should be when we encounter Christ. We can't go back the same way. We've been changed by that encounter. Um, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, so there's all of these dimensions kind of at work. Uh, the, the power and the authority of Caesar, who was literally called Lord at the, at the time in, in the first century, um, he is going to be outshadowed, overshadowed, by this little baby born in this obscure village, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, right? And this is this is the providence, and this is sort of the the, the mystery of God at work. That in that story, the more powerful person is Christ, the divine child, who has, by human appearances, right, nothing. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have clothes. He doesn't have power. He doesn't have prestige but yet he's the one ultimately who matters even more than Caesar. And Luke, in narrating the gospel, in using the word Lord um, throughout this narration, is trying to sort of show this, right? Um, He is telling us who the real Lord is. It's not Caesar who's curious. It's Jesus who is curious, who is Lord. Um, then let's think a little bit about the, the location, um, laying in a manger. Uh, Fulton Sheen narrates this so, so beautifully um, in his, uh, in his uh, Life of Christ, uh, which I think is his, 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 his most important book. Uh, and I've, I've got just a quotation from that. So check this out. I, I love it. In the filthiest place in the world, a stable purity was born. He, who was later to be slaughtered by men who were acting as beasts, was born among beasts. He, who later would call himself the living bread descended from heaven, was laid in a manger, literally a place to eat. So he's, I'll stop here, just, he's in the manger, that's the place where the animals eat. And he is going to feed us with his body, which will be called the living bread. And he is born and placed in a place to eat. Oh, Sheen is so good. I'll continue with with Sheen. Centuries before, the Jews had worshipped the golden calf and the Greeks the ass. Men bowed down before them as before God. The ox and the ass now were present to make their innocent reparation, bowing down before their God. The world might have expected the Son of God to be born, if he was to be born at all, in an inn. A stable would be the last place in the world where one would have looked for him. Divinity is always where one least expects to find it. And that truly, to me, captures sort of the the beauty of uh, this reading from the Christmas Eve Gospel, that Jesus is who we know him to be, right? We know the end of the story. This is the beginning of the story, but at the beginning, it's all just reversal after reversal. 
He's not powerful looking, yet we know he's going to conquer sin and death. He has no prestige. Nobody knows who he is yet. Today, who, who, who talks about Caesar Augustus and Quirinius? <laughs> Only Christians celebrating Christmas, right? Quirinius was well-known in his time, and if you told Quirinius at that time, you know, a couple thousand years from now, people are still going to be talking about you. I bet he would have thought, that's pretty good. I must have risen up. I'm, maybe I'm going to rise up in the ranks. No, we just mention him as an afterthought. Caesar today and Quirinius today are accidental afterthoughts in the narration of Luke's gospel that we read every year as Catholics, at the Christmas Midnight Mass. Jesus is going to conquer sin, and yet he's the helpless one. He is going to offer himself to be food, and yet he is laying already in the place of food. Um, this will not shock you. I'm going to talk about Fulton Sheen again, and then I'll wrap up. Fulton Sheen describes in the life of Christ, and I mentioned already that the gifts of frankincense and myrrh and being bound and wrapped up and this being placed in the manger where, you know, animals would eat. He describes that in the nativity, you see shadows of the cross present, hanging over his life. It, it, it's as though Jesus begins his life with a, with a crucifix that is casting a shadow on him, and as he matures and, and journeys finally to Jerusalem to endure his suffering and passion, he's just getting closer and closer and closer to the cross. So right now, you have just these, these tiny little signs. But as he journeys, the cross, the crucifix, becomes more vivid, more present, more central. Finally, close by this. Look at Mary's response here to the shepherds, um, or to, to the shepherd's message. So, uh, the shepherd says they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told them concerning this child. All right, what, so they, they shared the message. Be not afraid, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy, which will come to all people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Um, so they, they proclaim this, right? Uh, and they told all who heard it, sorry, and when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what these shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. This gives us an image of Mary as always being contemplative, always meditating on the meaning of the mystery of Christ. So as you go forward preparing for Advent, or for Christmas rather, and wrapping up the Advent season, be like Mary. Take these readings, read them, pray about them, ponder them in your heart, and in that way you'll be prepared to enter hopefully more fruitfully into the mystery of Christmas. So thank you for joining us for this series for Advent, and I hope you have a very blessed Christmas. Thank you. <music>